Isaiah 43. And we're going to attempt the best thing we could possibly do. is We're going to have Bible class. And we'll try and get through all of Isaiah 43. No, no, we should. No, no. There, I'm, I've got it like this. Oh, we're on 20? We're done. <laughs> Just kidding. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. Again, uh, when we come to your word, we want to hear from you, but we know that you pre- uh, prepared this uh, specifically for us. Now, Father, we thank you that uh, you've given us building, given us uh, people working with the young people so that they can uh, learn at their abilities. And Father, we know that uh, as we look around the room, there's many who are sick and under the weather. Uh, this time of the year is uh, just going back and forth with weather. Just uh, be with them. Uh, also lift up Rick and Billy tonight as Rick has been moved and, and just strengthen Billy as she deals with this change. And and uh, uh, once again, we, we want to uh, honor you knowing that he's in your hands, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So now that I said that, I'll go on record. Rick is in Bartersville in a nursing home, so he's been moved. Everything's okay for right now that I know of, because uh, Paula and James were up there and texting me and telling me what's going on. So he is, I can't think of the name of the place, but I'll let you know, something pack, park. Um, so he's right off of uh, 75 and uh, Frank Phillips Boulevard in Bartersville. So, But, however, that's a long ride for Billy, so pray for her. They're putting her up for a couple of nights, so. That's, where, that's as much as I know, is what you've got. So uh, so we're in chapter 43. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first seven verses, Isaiah 43, and we're going to read the first seven verses. Again, um, one of the things I, I kind of brought up last week, um, these chapters tie together. It's real easy if you look at the first words that we're going to read is, but now. So there's a tie and a uh, continuity and a flow of these chapters, so I want you to recognize that whenever you do Bible study, try and read through a section and and avoid chapter and verse breaks if you can, but we're going to read verses 1 through 7, so we're all together, so, but now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored, and I love you. I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Uh, A wonderful piece of passage of scripture as it's talked about. Israel and Israel's relationship with God. So here's what we're going to do and, and, and kind of walk through these ideas that are here. Um, my study Bible, it's not the most uh, prolific or best. I, I, all study Bibles are different and have their good and bad parts. But mine says, Israel to be redeemed and restored. I think that's a bad title. 
Um, Because it kind of looks like there's a time where uh, Israel wasn't under God's care and is looking far ahead. And and I I think what we need to focus on is where he left off in chapter 42. Let's do this. Go back a few verses and we'll go to verse 23 of chapter 42. Because what we need to do is is tie these two together. Because what we have is a rebellious nation who has always been rebellious and God has always been who God is. So I think if I was to title chapter 43, the beginning of it, any, anything other than that, that, that I have, I would say God is a gracious, loving God. That's what that part of the chapter would be. It's not really about Israel. So verse, verse 23 says, Who among you will give an ear to this? Who will give heed and listen hereafter? Who gave Jacob up for spoil and Israel to plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? and in whose ways they were not willing to walk, and whose law they did not obey. And I, that sets the stage. Israel's in rebellion. That's, I don't think that's news. I don't think it's news today that Israel's in rebellion. Um, and it's sad. It's sad because, again, I think I ended last week a little bit with the idea of how much Israel was given to have that relationship with God, and what did they do? Basically ignored it, went... You know, it's it's fascinating when you give people instructions to do certain things, and they say this, and you say to them, "Do it this way, and it'll work right, and it'll and it'll be to your advantage to do it this way." And you just turn for a second and turn back, and you see them doing exactly what you didn't tell them to do. And that's kind of Israel. Israel's been all over the place uh, forever, and God has still been the same God. So here's what we have in verse in chapter 43. If you want to get that kind of foothold where we're going. We're going to look at who God is in spite of who Israel remains to be. Uh, That's never going to change, but yet God still has a plan for Israel. And I think what we will look at is things that that God has for Israel that we can use when we have similar situations. I don't want to do all kind of application, but I want to look at that. Kind of get what I'm saying? For instance, um, the chapter starts out with... there's a lot of grammatical markers here, so I, I've got to hit them. So the first two words, but now, is a grammatical marker, number one. The reason it's a grammatical marker, he's, Isaiah is saying, here's what was, and now this is what contrasts that. So when we're talking about Israel and rebellion, we're, don't think Israel as, as a glorified nation is in contrasting to that. Israel's in rebellion, and here who is God in contrast to that. So the, the comparison is not about Israel in one stage and Israel in a different stage. It's Israel, because why? Because we only, only constant, if you're doing a math kind of formula, the constant in the formula is going to be God. What's Israel going to be? Spiritually, it could be wherever. And there are different, and I want to make sure I remind you, I'm talking about Israel as a nation, not individual Jews. Because obviously Isaiah is a really solid believer, right? But the nation has some issues. So don't you know? Don't understand the the, the separation between nation and individuals. So when we look here, um, we have but now, and here's here's the interesting thing. We have this kind of a marker. Israel is in rebellion. God is always staged for redemption. God wants to redeem these people. Now here's the hard part. Because in different stages of Israel's history, they were considered a redeemed nation. They are not when we're talking about an Isaiah. In Exodus, redeemed nation, because they were called out from Egypt 
and God has redeemed them with the blood of the Lamb. They were a redeemed nation. Here they're not. They're an absolute rebellion. And I want you to understand that. And half the nation's already been taken into captivity by the Assyrians. You with me so far? I know it's a lot of stuff to kind of absolve as we, as we do it, go into this. So Israel, let's do it this way. Israel, the northern kingdom, is in discipline, spiritual discipline, because they're under the, uh, the Assyrian captivity. The southern kingdom, who, Ju- who Isaiah is ministering to, Judah, really soon they're going to be, uh, I'm not sure the date of this, but we're going to say within 100 years, they will be taken into captivity. So it's a ballpark figure. The Babylonians are like over the mountain waiting to come in and take them. And when that final discipline is in, that's when God goes to stage five, if you want to, four or five or whatever, and saying, "Here's now this nation is in dispersion, and they're scattered. And you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, where God had said, when you do not obey me, this will happen. And they'll look. And Israel's pretty much, I'm going to say this, they're still in rebellion, because where is Israel? So if you go over, go, go over to verses 5, 6, 7, are they in the east, are they in the west, are they in the north, are they in the south? Yes, they're not in Israel, so they're scattered, okay? Um, and that's kind of the idea there. Um, uh, what we have a great picture of ahead of time, though, is that God is going to extend grace beyond the equivalent sin. Kind of, in other words, Israel sinned. How much grace would cover it? God's got plenty of grace, and God is reaching out to them in grace. And, and there's a similar verse in Romans 5 that says, where sin abounded, grace, and, grace uh, abounded all the more. Right? So, it's, so, in other words, well, Romans 6.1 even says, don't think you should sin just because grace abounds. Don't do that. That's wrong thinking. But God does what? Grace people out. In, in the stage of sin that they're in. So Israel is in a tremendous amount of sin. Uh, we're going to see that in at least the next two chapters after this, how horrible they're in and how and what God... Basically, Israel's in spiritual adultery. I mean, I don't know how else to put it, and we'll discuss it further in, in the coming weeks. But I want you to understand something. In light of this, what we have is God's love for his servant Israel. That's what we're going to see is God's love. And not only that, I think one of the key ideas in this is where, when you have all this stuff happening to you, where do you find comfort? So where does Israel look for comfort? And I think we'll see some really neat things here as we look at this. Uh, uh, so just look at verse 1. Because verse 1 says, But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel. Just, just stop there. Think of this. God created and formed Israel. And the idea is, how did he create Israel? Out of what? What did he, what did he have? What, did, what was his first step of creating the nation of Israel? Is to do what? Call, call Abraham. Okay, right? Called Abram from where? The best city in the world, right? I was once taught a long time ago, and you guys have probably heard of it a bunch of times. He was called, he was called from the Ernal of the Chaldeans. It was just a... A cesspool of, of nuttiness. We know from scripture that his father is very involved in idolatry. Doesn't say he wasn't, but I'm saying he's an older guy when he's called, so he probably was. Uh, he responded to God's call, however, and God called this, created this nation from one man and then formed it or fashioned it. It's kind of an interesting thing because it's the same word he uses for Eve when he took Eve out of Adam's side. He fashioned her, formed her. Um, so basically, God's got his hands 
involved in the creation and the, and the continuation of the nation of Israel. Uh, so Israel is to have that their hope in God because God... Well, why would God create them if he didn't care about them to start with, first of all? So God created us as humans, right? Does he not care about us? So, the, so now God calls a nation out of all the other nations for a specific purpose. And he wouldn't have formed them and fashioned them and then given them covenants and so on and so forth. We're not going to go into a whole lot. And then abandon what he's done. So the problem is, what do the people understand about their relationship with God and God's relationship with them? And I think that's what we're going to get more than anything in Isaiah 43. But you can turn with me to Philippians 1 real quick. Hold your finger there. Get a piece of paper. We're going to go right back to Isaiah. But I want to go to Philippians chapter 1. Verse 5. And, and all I'm doing is kind of just getting you mentally prepared for where God is doing with Israel. This isn't an Israel verse. It's just an overall universal thing well we could start in verse 3 Philippians 1 3 I thank God thank I thank my God in uh, in all my remembrance of you always offering prayer and joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now for I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus so the idea is as a Philippian believer you would know that God was with you to the end kind of thing. Well, I don't think that, that, obviously this verse doesn't apply to Israel, but I think the same God that's doing that applies to Israel. And I think God, when he, in Isaiah 43, as he's made and fashioned them, he's very involved in their uh, relationship, involved in their destiny, I guess is a better way to put it, because Israel's going to go through many turbulent times from, we're going to just use a ballpark figure, 701 B.C., Till 2020, right? Israel's going to go through a lot, and it isn't over, because Israel's still a nation. And if you look at the, uh, what, what you pointed out a little bit, if you look at the historical flow of Israel, it's pretty terrible. What's, the atrocities has happened, the different things has happened, but God is still with them. Now, how do you explain that to them? So I, that's what this chapter is going to do. Because the first thing he says is, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. So in verse 1, he says, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. Israel now. This is the hard part. Israel is not a redeemed nation at this point. But God has done everything he can up until this point and then later to set up their redemption. That means he's going to buy them back kind of idea. Uh, uh, for instance, well, let's just deal with the idea of fear because I think it's interesting here. He's not saying don't start to fear. He's saying they're in fear. They need to stop it. Uh, why are they in fear? Well, they're surrounded by nations that want to destroy them. It's different than today. Uh, if you look at Israel's past history, they weren't very weaponized. It's kind of interesting to look at how Israel did war. First war, I guess, first battle Israel ever had, Jericho, right? What's, what missiles did they have? What, what ordnance did they send up? What guns did they carry? They didn't. They did what? And And... and Bang the noise and blow Trump. I mean, I don't know if any band has ever taken down a city. You know, uh, so you got to look at Israel was told to do certain things and God did what? The battle was the Lord's, obviously. Later, Saul, I think it's Saul and Jonathan are the only ones that even have a sword in all of Israel. How did the, how did the rest of the Israelites fight the battle? They picked up farm weapons. 
We've all seen movies like that, right? The farmers come into town all mad with axes and plows and, I mean, and uh, hoes and stuff. We're going to win the battle. And the other guy says, yeah, I got a gun. <laughs> you know, how's this going to work out for you? Uh, today's Israel is a little different. They pack the punch uh, a little bit. But they sh- there's still a state of fear. And I think most of it is because of the relationship with God today. But back in, here, it's because of what's going on around them. And what God is saying to them, and he says it ten times over. Well, just in this chapter alone, he's going to say in verse 5, Do not fear, I am with you. So he's going to say it two times in a few verses. Um, which is fascinating, because God is interesting how he does things, especially in chapter 43. He, God implores Israel to stop this state of fear, and then he tells them how to do it. That's really easy, because I'm sure most of you have told your kids to do something, and they don't listen, and you say, well, let me explain to you how to do it. And you say, no, I've told them a hundred times, I'm not going to do this. And God's told them a hundred times, but he's still going to take time to see this. So in verses 2 through 4, God gives a reason for the command, and in verses 5 through 7, he repeats the command, but gives a reason. Now, I was told something a long time ago, when I became a pastor. Sometimes you've got to make decisions, and you don't have to tell people the reasons why. And I go, okay, and I haven't had a lot of those opportunities, and I don't like if I have those opportunities, because I like to always kind of explain myself. That's who I am. However, I find it fascinating that God, who never has to explain himself and shouldn't have to explain, always explains himself. He wants to reason with man. Come now, let's reason together. Okay? That's how you know God's personal. Because if he's impersonal, he just say, just fire off and just do it God's way or the highway kind of thing. Um, but God always uh, gives a command. I guess we put it this way. God always gives a command with truth and the reason behind the command. And I think that's interesting. Uh, or you could say it this way. God never gives a command without an explanation. Do, so in verses 1, he says, Do not fear. And what's the very next word in verse 1? Four, which is, the, which is the explanation. Basically, you could say it this way. Stop the state of fear for this reason, and here are the facts. So what's the fact number one? I have redeemed you. Who's the one that can pay the price? Who's the one that can call them? Who's going to be called their redeemer? God. That's a really good basis for stopping fear. Because um, just think, what's the worst thing that can happen to anybody in this room right now? The worst thing. And don't say, because it's kind of a catch-22 question because if you say the worst thing that can happen is i die no it's not that's graduation for a believer right so it's kind of you know where it is um but if we did die and all of us are going to at some point have a destination of that or rapture um if we did though my redeemer lives because he's going to bring me home and that's a comforting thing so when god says i am your redeemer he's basically reaching out and says all you have to do is do what believe He's saying the same thing to the nation of Israel, he says today. Or do you believe I'm your redeemer? If you can't, if you do, that's step number one to, to, to alleviating the fear. Look at verse five. Just, we're not going to go to all of it. I'm just, verse five is similar. It says, do not fear, for I am with you. So another fact we could say, what? A good reason to stop the state of fear is what? God's with you. Now, people say, well, I don't feel that. And I'm going to tell you something. If you let your emotions run anything, what I would call, as far as your spiritual life goes, if it's going to be based on your emotions, you're going to have a horrible spiritual life. Because you're going to have days you just feel like garbage. How's your spiritual life? 
should be okay. Okay? And then there's days you're going, oh, I'm great, I praise the Lord and everything. No, that's not how this works. He got it. And chapter 43 is going to help a lot because what we're going to see is can you cognizantly think these thoughts? Not feel anything, because I don't know if you could feel he's your redeemer. I don't know if you could feel the idea that he is with you. I mean, somebody would say, ooh, I knew God was with me because, ooh, I felt the, what, the jelly rolls or something. I don't know. You know, what do you feel? And the problem with feelings, though, and let's be honest, there's enough of us in the room to say most of us have feelings, but they're not all the same. And they're not about the same things. So if you know anything about feelings, they're very what? Subjective, right? So, and facts are objective. And we want to stay with objective truth, not saying, well, this is my truth because you don't know what I went through. And, and I, I have problems with that when we talk about spiritual things, when people say, oh, God. Now, I'm not knocking any spiritual thing that happened to you and you felt something, but we can't make that a consistent, across the board, everybody should have that. Got what I'm saying? Because if you do that, you're going to be in a world of trouble. But I can tell you this, everybody's got this. If you fear, you have to understand God is your Redeemer. And if you fear, understand God is with you. And we'll elaborate on those two things. And those are good, solid stepping stones to start with, right? I, I would think so. Here's the fascinating thing in Scripture. Now, I've never done a survey, but I could say overall, I think this pretty much nails it. That God, that the Lord God gives us more reason more reasons to obey than commands to obey. He gives more reasons to obey than commands to be obeyed. Can you absorb that for a minute? Okay. God will say, here's a command, and here's 19 reasons why. You kind of get the... I'm, I'm exaggerating, but sometimes you learn by exaggeration, right? But if you think about it, if you go through Scripture, God will give you so many reasons to obey Him. Uh, just in this one verse, just think of this. He's the Lord, your creator, who formed you, right? Think of that. Creator, the Lord, who formed you. That, that means God's intimately involved with the creation. I, could, I say the same thing about us. He's talking about the nation of Israel, but can we not say God created us? Can we not say God formed us? Can we not say he's the Lord? So you see what I'm saying? These, these are sim- where we come, come to similar things that we need to... Um, which is fascinating, because grammatical marker number two of this chapter, we're only in verse one, you've got two grammatical markers. The second one is all the verbs here are in perfect tense. Now, let me explain this to you. We talk as we do things in past, present, and future. Right? Most of our things, Greek doesn't work like that, and Hebrew doesn't work like that at all. So if you ever hear somebody say, well, this is past tense in the Hebrew, say, there's no such thing. There's no future tense. There's just stems that tell you how the action is carried. So if you say, uh, I threw a ball, I threw a ball, that's me, my active. I caught the ball, that's another action, you know. The ball hit me, that's a whole different action. Or I took a bat out and hit the ball, another action. You kind of get what I'm saying? These are all different actions, but they're not telling you when you did it. Okay, but however, Hebrew has a, a, a um, perfect tense and an imperfect tense. These are all perfect tense verbs. That means even though it looks like the, that these things haven't happened, in God's eyes, they've happened. God is always with them, and God has always redeemed them. They are not a redeemed nation, but it's just like God's desire is for all men to be saved. Can we all agree with that? Have all men be, been saved? But his desire, so if God wills something, 
All men have to do is what? Say yes to the cross work of Christ. And they got it. Because God's desire is for their... Kind of get the picture? God's desire is for Israel to be redeemed. All that nation has to do is reach out to him as that nation and get, and get what God has for him. Because it is a completed action. So two grammatical markers I think are really interesting so far. So the spiritual emphasis of this ver- these verses is the basis of God's present help to the nation of Israel who are in the state of fear. How does God help? I've done something for you that covers you like a life insurance policy. You're, you can be redeemed. And I'm always with you, so who fights your battles? See, God's still with Israel. There's, they've done some really interesting things. Do you realize in 1948 they were voted in as a nation, right? The UN took a vote and it carried, which to this day surprises me. Okay? It carried. They had a war, like instantaneously. What kind of a war... I mean, what kind of a country has a war the second they've made a country by factions that wanted to vote you out and kill you and vote you out of the UN and all of a sudden they come together to fight them and they have what to battle with? We're back to the pruning show here, you know, the hoes and, and Israel wins. God was in their midst. You understand that? Because these nations could have taken them out in a minute. 1967, they have a six-day war. Six-day war. They were supposed to be wiped out in six days. They win. And they win all this territory that now they negotiate and get back. But that's a whole different story. Um, but you can see just in our, in our lifetime the hands of God on that nation. Um, that's right. Every time I get a little blurb from my app or something, it says, F-35s threw over, flew over Syria and bombed them. I said, oh, Israeli. Really? <laughs> They don't fear. They don't, they're not worried about what the news says or CNN's going to blast them. But they just get it done. They get it done. And they say, okay, case closed. Next, next problem. Because they want to deal with problems proactively. They're not going to wait till they become a problem. Uh, and so as we look at this, the, uh, now, if we understand this, and we understand God's track record, Right? God has a track record. Can we trust God's track? Well, let me ask it this way. Is God trustworthy? If we say yes, then he will redeem you and he will be in your midst. Right? Kind of get what I'm saying? And can we look at God's track record and prove he is trustworthy? And I think that's why we have the biblical record. Uh, uh, so, we talked about redeem. So, hold your finger here. Go to Exodus real quick. Exodus 21. Uh, 31, I'm sorry. 31.2. So verse 2, well, verse 1, just whatever. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, See, I, <clears throat> see, I have called you by name Beziel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, the son of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God and wisdom and an understanding and a knowledge and all kinds of craftsmen to make artisan, artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze. Turn over to chapter 35. 
So then, then Moses said to the sons of Israel, See, the Lord has called Beziel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the, the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and craftsmen to make designs for working silver and gold. So the same, same idea. The reason is, God. here's what God does, and I want you to see the track record of God. God calls him for a, for a specific purpose, these specific artisans, for a specific purpose, and he gives them a direction on which to go. So those two things are involved. And when we look at that, we can count on God's help because he gives us a a special purpose and a direct way. So when God's going as this nation is gone, he started out with, here's the purpose for you, you're going to be artisans, and here's the direction you're going to do, these these specific guys. But the nation as a whole has a direction and uh, a special purpose. So God's going to help them with that direction and special purpose because these uh, these people were redeemed and and they were called to help, uh, called um, by God for a specific relationship. Now, the reason I'm saying that is because the terms we need to know is how close a relationship that God gave to this nation who had a specific purpose and a direct way to carry it out. Okay, got with me so far? Go back to Isaiah. I want you to see this. This is kind of cool. Then we're going to look at grammatical marker number three. And this is what happens when we have uh, translations sometimes. We don't see these things. Uh, and it's, it's, it's sometimes difficult. Uh, it says in the end of verse 1, I have called you by my name. You are mine. Uh, you are mine. Now, in, in Hebrew... If you look at the original language, there's no verb there. I don't know how to say that when we're speaking a sentence or reading in English without a verb. We got so they stuck a verb in there to carry the flow of the language. Because how would you say you mine? Kind of sounds what almost like a Neanderthalian, right? You mine, uh, kind of idea. Um, but I want you to understand this. When you look at the Hebrew and kind of understand it, it's really neat because what it's saying is nothing comes between you and me because there's no verb. Nothing's carrying it. So what comes between God and the nation of Israel? Nothing. Isn't that kind of cool? And that's only by a grammatical marker. Uh, and, and as we see this, when God is get, when God, and so then, uh, there's no action needed by either side. God has already done it to say, we wa- I just want a relationship with you. So God says, here's a nation. He's called them out. They're now in this state of fear because they haven't realized who their God is, haven't had a good grasp of what I would call solid theology. Um, they're looking around them, and as they look around them, it's, it's fearful. The nations are coming together to destroy them, basically, and they really don't have a defense system. And previously in the book of Isaiah, we've talked about them making alliances with other nations. It didn't work out. Uh, even Egypt, when they were trying to make the alliance, was already falling apart. But God says, why do you have to do that when there's nothing between me and you? We have a relationship. Nothing can stop this relationship. All you have to do is what? Well, I, I think it's pretty clear there. I have called you by name. There's a relationship there. Can you see what I'm trying to say? It's a fascinating thing. So when we get to verse 2, God says, okay, since you don't grasp what we're trying to do here, let's look at the future. I still have something for you. 
And he's going to use a future hope by looking at things that we can kind of attribute to things God's already done. But it's still a future, because he says, when you pass through the waters, and this is uh, an idea, when you do, but Israel already had passed through the waters, didn't they? Remember, anybody remember the Red Sea and Jordan, right? Two, two different, everybody the Red Sea, but there's also Jordan. So they had passed through the waters, and, and the waters have always been, these kind of waters are always an example of some kind of judgment, too. Remember, anybody remember a thing called the flood? Lizzie's doing the ark with the kids today. Go see what she's doing. She's got all these animals are throwing into the ark. I don't think that's how it worked. God called them and they went in, but the kids are going to toss them into the ark. Um, it's, it's good good for their sports, uh, I guess, activity. But, um, but if you think about it, it's a sign of judgment, right? So he says, but when you pass through the waters, what? Reason, I will be with you. So even though there's going to be some kind of trouble ahead for them, um, God understands the trouble, and he says, when you have the trouble, I'll be with you. Now, this is hard, because when we come to application side for us, when you're in trouble, God's with you, and you're going to say, nope, I don't feel it. Stop it. Stop saying that. I don't know how many people have said to me, I don't feel God's presence. I don't know what you're supposed to feel. You know, like, again, we're back to the, ooh, jellies. We know God is with us. He said it, right? So the next thing says what? And through the rivers, so waters are kind of big troubles. I would say rivers are waiting troubles, you know, wait, you know waiter depth troubles. Um, he says, they will not overflow you. So let's get two things out of this. When you're troubled, what is that? There's a Simon and Garfunkel coming through my head. Bridge over what? Troubled waters. Okay, just think of this for a minute. When you're on that troubled water situation, God is with you. And when you're in the rivers of trouble, God limits how much they are. Now, here's the problem. Because I said when I was writing this, I said, well, you know, a, a limiting a trouble is always in the eyes of the beholder, right? I mean, think about this. You, you've seen people, what is that old adage? I, I was worried I had no shoes until I saw the man who had no feet. I mean, oh, that's so prophetic kind of thing. Um, but when you think about that, when you're going through the troubles and, and when somebody walks up to you and says, don't worry, God's limiting it. He's taking care of it. You go, nah. <laughs> uh, and it doesn't look like that, but they get, that's what it is. And that's, that's hard for us to do it. But I, I want you to understand that. For Israel, um, they were, for instance, in, in chapter 42, uh, verse 25, they were burned with fire, right? But they, in verse chapter 43, they in verse... At the end of verse 2, it says, when you walk through the fire, you want to be scorched. So you're going to go through fire, but you're, going to be, you're not going to be burned off. In other words, there's a limit to their troubles. Okay? Uh, but if you, your minds go back, you think of Jordan, you think of the Red Sea, you think of the three guys in the fiery furnace in Daniel, right? Ben, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Bendigo. You can think of uh, God's different times of fire and brimstone, judgment kind of thing. Nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God. The whole Now listen, here's more reasons. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, well, let's, let's, before I do that, let's think of this. Do you realize that some troubles can not only, do not only hurt you, but they sometimes bless you? And that's the, that's the difficult part, because everybody's looking for the blessing when? As the trouble's happening. Not through the troubles. And here's the hard, I feel like counseling session. Here's the hard part, because I'm also talking to myself too, so don't think, you know. When you go through things, God's not going to give you something somebody else hasn't already had. 
There's a track record there, and you can see where God has dealt with different people and the testimonies that come out of that. I think the neatest thing is, is when God says, you got to comfort others with the comfort you received. So you've gone through X, whatever it is, and God has said, you've made your way through. I've allowed you certain parameters within that. I was with you. Can you now tell somebody else when that is going through something similar? That's an interesting uh, thing to do. It's a great testimonial. Um, but here's another reason to stop fearing, and I think we missed this. In verse 3, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom. Cush. Uh, now, just kind of circle those three nations, uh, Egypt, Cush, and Seba. What he's basically saying, I'm willing to give up the northern African nations for your survival. Now, it's not a trade-off, but God's saying, that's how much I care about you. Okay? Since uh, So we, we have these ideas. The Lord, uh, we know is when it says God is the Lord, in my Bible it's all caps. Everybody have it? The word Lord is all caps. Usually if it's all caps, it's that tetragrammaton, uh, Yahweh, Y-H, W-H. So it's a specific name of God uh, that he calls himself. Then, then he says, he, I am the Lord, your God. God is a personal God. When it talks about God, he's personal. So we have God who is sovereign, we could put in here. We could put in he's provident. He's all-knowing, all all-controlling. And then we have the idea he's very personal. And he's, the, he's also the God is the Holy One of Israel. He's, the, he's got Israel's redemption in his hands nationally, and he has a relationship with that nation. I'm going to say this over and over again. I know it's very repetitive. I don't know how many nations there are in the world today. I didn't do a survey, and probably tonight there'll be a new one, an old one gone. I don't know. Things are happening so fast sometimes. The only nation God has ever had a relationship with, even though we say one nation under God, that's us saying that, but the only one God had a relationship with is Israel. And i got a whole book to prove it. Okay? Um, but it's interesting. So God says, I am the Holy One of Israel. He doesn't say I'm the Holy One of America. Just kind of think about it for a minute. It's purposely said that way for a specific thing to have that national relationship with that one nation. Then he says, I'm your Savior. Back to the idea of Redeemer. He's the only one that could deliver them. Remember, and this is hard sometimes because we always say, oh, are you saved? And we're thinking of spiritual salvation, justification. Israel never separated their spiritual salvation from their physical deliverance. So when David, who was saved, says, Lord, deliver me, He's not looking for spiritual salvation, and he's not looking for physical. He's looking for both to come, and both come together in one person, the Messiah. Kind of get what he's asking? So David's just not saying, bring your salvation. I need to be delivered from war, because even if you're delivered from war, it's only what? Until the next one starts. So yeah, they want deliverance, but Israel's looking for that national deliverance, that time of peace that will only come with the Prince of Peace. And when they, when he comes and rules and reigns, the nation of Israel will be physically delivered, spiritually delivered, and have, be, have the right rightful king on the throne. Kind of get the whole idea? Uh, so when we say God is your savior, understand the dynamics of that kind of idea. So don't look at, oh, they're looking at the cross. Because if, if people in Isaiah are looking at the cross, I don't know how they did it. You know, I'm sure there's picture. I mean, we're going to go through Isaiah 53 in about, I don't know, two months, three months for about two nights, one night. 
because I've already done it for, I don't know, a long time here. Um, but you look at that and you can't really get the cross. I mean, we know it's the cross because we look from the cross back, but you can't look at Isaiah 53 and say, oh, that's the cross. The Roman cross, they're going to put him to death. And these are all, we can say this is what happened and look at Isaiah 53. But, you know, they're not, they're not looking at the cross. They're looking at the, what it cost and the high cost of redemption. And when we talk about redemption, he, he says, I'm give, I'm willing to give all of this large continent of Africa just to give up so you can be ransomed. Uh, how does God express his love? You know, often, this is going to sound crazy, God's saying, by the land I control. God expresses his love. And where God's love is, is if, and God's love finds its basic foundation in who God is. So you can't say God is love, because that's, again, we're back with a verb. How do you separate God from a hit, one of his attributes with a verb? God loves. When does he stop loving? You know, some people wake up every morning and say, oh God, I hope you love me. You know, like, like you made God's day uh, ruined by your personality or your, who you are. Nothing changes. God loves you because he loves. And that's kind of an interesting thing because we don't do that. Uh, you know, we don't even love our dog because, oh, my dog is lovable. You know, you know I'm kind of almost forced to because I can't get rid of it. You know, I get in trouble if I say, no, you can't. I could try. Don't you love Yeah, I'd love him to leave for a while. <laughs> right? But we love, and our love is sometimes very uh, not God-friendly, because we love, because why do you love? You know, it's fascinating doing any kind of marriage counseling, and if, do you love her? I do, purposely do it. Of course I love her. I want to marry her. No, no, no. I'm asking, that. I don't, I didn't ask you. I go, are you willing to put up with her when she's 80? Vision her when she's 80. And he go, well, I can't do that. Well, think of her grandmother. <laughs> you want to live with her? And, oh, well, <laughs> rethink this, because love is what? Love is tough, right? Because we think on human level. But God is love. There's, it's, it's not a time he hasn't. And he's not loving in, because of something. It is, And it's interesting. And I can say it this way. God doesn't have love for us because he loves us. God has love for us because he's God. I don't know how else to say it. Um, it's hard to understand. Because uh, I look around for loving people. And if you watch the news at any length... You say, yeah, that guy deserved it. I don't know. Am I the only one that looks at the news and says, yeah, that guy, yeah. <laughs> Knew that was going to happen, you know? Because he what? He, nobody loves that guy. Well, you know, kind of thing. Uh, but God does. Here's the fascinating thing. God does. God does. And one of the things I was looking at today, which kind of, I'm going to give you a little preview for something, because it really shook me, because I don't know how to teach something that I don't... I don't get sometimes. God's desire is for all men to be saved. Yes or no? That's his will. We are to be people who are doing God's will. God wants all men to be saved. Do you realize the repercussions of that to us? That means if you run in somebody and you say, that guy's a real... God wants to save him. And our job is to do what? God's will. And the only voice they may hear is you, and you're looking at that person like, can you get out of my way? Do you understand what the implications of this is? It is tough. So I'm trying to put that on paper. How to understand this and how to teach this. And I'm going, that is tough. And I'm going to say then when I teach it again, that's tough. Because God is God and his desire is for all men, I don't know how, all men to be saved. 
the guy holding up the road sign on the edge of the road, whoever it is, the guy who cuts you off, the nasty cashier, whoever, God wants all men to be saved. Do you understand the universality of that? And how hard that is, because we're supposed to exude God's love. And we're humans. I'm not saying, I'm not saying we can't do it. It's hard, though. Okay? Uh, and sometimes it's even hard for your own family. People in your family, your kids, or, you know, your dog. <laughs> Poor dog. Verse 5. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather them from the west. Now, here's what God does. Uh, again, the same thing with grammar. Um, what he's saying is, in verse 5, I am with you, uh, and I will gather you. No, I will bring your offspring from the east and the west. And all these things is basically saying, I have this relationship with you, and these are the things I'm going to do. Uh, which is kind of interesting, because temporarily, God often replaces Israel with other nations that he deals with. Temporarily. Because why? Israel may be under discipline. I, wanna, I think one of the things, in this time of Israel's discipline, that they've been, their, God's program has been postponed to them, I think we've got blessings, because who we are and what we've done with the nation of Israel. I really think, I'm not a prophet, but I think it's coming to an end. Um, one of the kids today asked me, did you watch the Democratic debate? Why would I do that? Why would I do that? There's so much other bad TV I could watch. Why would I do that? He goes, well, I think so-and-so won. I, I don't even care. I already know who I'm voting for. Anybody that's not there. It's just easy, you know. Where's the wigs when you want them? <laughs> Half of you go, what? Um, they had, what, four presidents, didn't they? Had they did? Never mind. That's going to American history. We're not doing that. Um, but think of this. Israel's survival is not due to their own merit. Think of, what, think of Israel if they merited God's favor. What have they done to merit God's favor? Okay, so God, God has promised them a glorious destiny because of who they are, and God will do it. So he goes on in verse 6, 7, tells you how he'll do it. He'll bring them, he'll gather them from the four corners. Verse, verse 8 says, um, Israel's, Israel still has a problem. So he's done all these things. God's told everybody about where he stands as, Israel, uh, as Israel's God and the relationship they have. In verse 8 he says, bring out the people who are blind, even the ones... That, even though they have eyes and the deaf, even though they have ears, all the nations have gathered together in order that the people may be assembled. Who among them can declare this and proclaim to this, to, to us the former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified. Oh, let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that I may know, and that, that you may know, excuse me, and believe me, and understand that I am He. Before me there is no God formed, and there will be none after me. Uh, again, God uses uh, an interesting thing. He says, you're my witnesses. Can you not tell? So kind of, so witnesses brings up the idea of a courtroom situation. Uh, so the participants in this courtroom situation is Israel and the nations. And the issue is this. So let's just deal with the issue and move on a little bit. Is the Lord supreme? Is the Lord sovereign? Can he foretell the future? And you can know that because how many times has God done that up until the time of Isaiah? Now, not every prophecy has been fulfilled in Isaiah's time, but many have been fulfilled. And God is a good, uh, good at doing what? 
being trustworthy. We already said that tonight. And he he talks about his witnesses. uh, And when we talk about the supremacy of God, one of the things we know is when he says at the very end, before me there was no God formed and there will be none after me. In other words, what he's saying is, in in a tactful way, I'm eternal. If somebody, if a God came before me, he's God. It's like the old argument, who created God? And you just say God. Well, who created God? God. Nobody created him, he always was. So you can't answer that because it's a question of what? Has, it's, it's a nonsensical question because God was not created, he always was. So when we talk about the eternal, internality of God, if he has a plan and he has always been God, always will be God, and there's not a time he won't be God, can he not carry out what he says he's going to do? That's the first thing. Secondly, uh, we, we look at verse 11, and it says, Even I, I am the Lord, there is no Savior besides me. There's no God beside me. There's no Savior, same idea. Again, uh, giving you an understanding of, in this courtroom, God saying, I am supreme, I am the Savior. And then he says in verse 12 and 13, it is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there is no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. From, from, even from eternity I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and I can reverse it. So basically God says, these things that are happening now are all in my hands because I am the supreme God. So we talk about the supremacy of God, the sovereignty of God, the saviorhood of God. Works out good. You can remember those things. And when we understand who God is, remember, how much have we looked at the nation, what they've done tonight? Very little. They come to the table with what? Fear. That's all they've come to the table with is a a fear. Uh, Not even an unnatural fear. It's 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 natural to fear when something bad may happen to you. And God's saying, here's all the reasons not to fear. Uh, Now, just for sake of where we'll be going, how are the idols working out for you? How's the idols working out for you? Because how can an idol claim anything in this chapter so far about themselves? They'd have to have, an idol would have to have a track record, right? How's that working out? Um, what we'll see is, is a little comical in the next chapter. God will say you take a piece of wood, break it in half, half of it's for the idol, half of it's for the fire. Do you understand what you're doing? Okay. Which, and, and I always, and the scripture doesn't say this, but just think, you break it in half, do you sit there and decide which is the God and which is the firewood? That's a real conundrum, right? Because you're the man who's now going to form this into your God, and you're saying, it's a weird thing, isn't it? That's how idolatry works. You've got to decide what kind of God you're going to have, and, and is the wood worthy of it? And I'm not really good at telling the difference of woods. One guy once told me, don't burn that wood. It's poisonous. Because we were going to burn this whole bonfire stuff. We'd kill the whole neighborhood. Okay? And he said, don't. That's one of the most poisonous things if you burn it in Florida. You know, I go, oh, okay. But that's what people are using, things that may be and we'll go into that because we're not going to jump too far ahead. But it's, it's interesting how man makes decisions in his limited ability and he thinks those decisions are higher than God. And, and to me, it's, it's, it's again, supreme uh, com- comedy when you see what man will do. So the point is this. God is supreme. He's a savior. He's sovereign. 
who can and does control men, nations, and events in such a way as to bless, in this case, his nation Israel. So if you're looking around and seeing all chaos going on, God's working things for his good, uh, even though it seems chaotic. So we, if we could say anything over the next set of verses, we could put Romans 8.28 over this, right? Uh, so let's look at three examples of God blessing Israel. Real quick, for verses 14 through uh, 21. Uh, first one we'll look at is God is supreme over Babylon. Now, think about this. Babylon's on its doorsteps getting ready to bring them down. And he says this in verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. You, ca- you hear the constant reminders to these people who God is? That would be really good. 2020, let's remind ourselves every day who God is, what He's done. I mean, how often do we say, hey, Lord's my Savior? We just say, hey, I'm saved. But we remind ourselves, it's kind of a good thing. For your sake I have sent to Babylon and will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans into the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. So notice what he does. He bookends this. I'm going to take down the Babylonians. Babylonians haven't done anything yet. They're just Babylonians rising kind of thing. But God says, remember, I am the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. How's your theology? Okay, so that's the first thing he deals with Babylon. Second thing, Egypt. Who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty man. They lie down together and not rise again. They have been quenched and extinguished like a wick. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder the things of the past. In other words, here's where I'm at. Here's what we're doing. Right now, here, here is foremost importance. Don't, don't look at what's happened in the past to you, and don't look at, the, don't look, don't behold things in the future. I hold today in your, my hands. Now, the, which is interesting, because if you think about it, the biggest occasion in Israel's history is known as the Passover. Uh, I think Emily's doing that with the kids tonight. It's a work. We get, we hit the ark, and we hit the Passover, and we go through those plagues. Didn't, or didn't you do? Not, no. Who's doing it? Oh, your sister, Sharon. Sharon. Sharon's doing it. Okay. Somebody's doing it. <laughs> and, and the thing that brought Israel out of Egypt was God's hand. God did it all. And all they had to do was paint the blood over it, and then he would redeem them. They'd go out, and then they got stuck between a rock and a, and a large sea. And they say, we're stuck. Nobody gave us a map. We didn't have, our Google phones didn't work or something. And God said, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll, get, I'll part the water for you. Supremely impossible. You know, I love people say, well, it was the Reed Sea, so they drowned in an inch of water. All the, all the Pharaoh's army and chariots and everything, like inches, the Reed Sea, I think, is a couple inches. No, he separated the Red Sea and drowned all these people, and then we get a song out of it in Exodus, the horse and the rider thrown into the sea. Great song, right? Um, but, but what they're doing is they're remembering these things. Verses 19 through 21, Behold, I will do something new. Wait a second, God's done... Going to do Babylon, which will be new kind of thing. Egypt. But now I'm going to do something new. Uh, bring down the night. In other words, what's next on, Israel, on Israel's agenda? And God says, now we'll spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I, I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The beasts, of the beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. 
to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. So God's going to do something new. Uh, now, it's interesting. At this time, the Euphrates River controlled this area's uh, trade, I guess is the best way you can say. But God's going to do something new. Um, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time in that. Verse 22 talks about Israel's rebellion uh, and and. Um, well, we can pick up next week. It'll only take two minutes to cover this. I'm not going to do it now. My voice is done. So, uh, we, and I don't want to run through something that'll take a couple minutes. So, and uh, you know what they say when the sheep stops, start sleeping, we need to move on. So. Um, and, and if I don't get the kids out of here at a certain time, teachers get mad. So, all right, next, well, let me give a couple quick reminders since we're here. Next Tuesday is all adult uh, seniors breakfast, 9 o'clock, okay? Um, next Sunday is our annual meeting and potluck luncheon, so if you want to, join us, those of you here that are here. Um, bring something we can all share or steal recipes from. So it's next Sunday after church, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had in the book of Isaiah. A lot of practical lessons tonight, Father, that you've given to the nation of Israel, but that are very practical to us. And one of the things that we can walk away with is knowing that you're in our midst, that you're a God who is sovereign, a God who is a Savior, a God who is supreme, and your word will never fail, and you you are watching over us, your sheep, Father. We thank you for that. We thank you that you are the good and great shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen.